Hello and welcome to this podcast series of the first 50 years of the history of the American Republic. I'm Chris McKenna and I'm here with my co-host, Kathy Conroy. Hi, Chris. In this podcast, we're going to talk about Washington's second term as president. Washington's first term as president would end in early 1793, and so elections would be scheduled to take place in the fall of 1792. Political divisions are beginning to grow during Washington's first term. Washington always conducted the affairs of the executive branch in a very nonpartisan manner, and many people in the government at that time favored Washington serving another term as president. As Thomas Jefferson said to Washington, quote, North and South will hang together if they have you to hang on, end quote. Chris, Washington's second term in office would be much more challenging than his first term relative to both domestic issues and foreign affairs. The political divisions among his cabinet members were becoming more pronounced and more personal in nature, especially the conflicts between Hamilton and Jefferson. As we talked about in our prior podcast, there were deep-seated philosophical differences regarding the strength and role of the newly created federal government. Hamilton believed in the need for a very strong federal government. Jefferson believed in the structure of the new country being a mix of an effective federal government, but one that did not diminish the strength and rights of the states. Some historians report that the southern states were concerned that Hamilton and his financial cohorts were getting too much power and that they might ultimately try to have the federal government abolish slavery, which would directly and severely impact the economics of the southern states. Washington viewed the country needing a strong federal government. Otherwise, he believed the young nation would just break down into regional factions. Given their similar philosophies, Hamilton had a large influence within Washington's executive cabinet. Hamilton and Jefferson continue with their disputes, and Jefferson resigns as the Secretary of State at the end of 1793, which is the first year of Washington's second term. Another uh, domestic problem, Kathy, that erupted in 1794 was the Whiskey Rebellion. We noted in a prior podcast that there were export taxes imposed on certain goods within Hamilton's Assumption Bill, which was passed by Congress during Washington's first term. These taxes were now being fully implemented and collected during Washington's second term. One of these taxes was the export tax on whiskey. In 1794, whiskey distillers in western Pennsylvania were very upset about this tax being imposed on their product, and they threatened violence against the tax collectors. When Washington heard of this, he was very disturbed by the threats made against these tax collectors, who were essentially agents of the new federal government. Washington's philosophy, among others, was that if you are governing yourself, if, you, if people are capable of governing themselves, then they are required to be governed by themselves. And, and if you don't like the laws, change them. But while they are the law, you must obey them. It's implicit in governing yourself. So Washington, being a problem fixer, 
He fixed the Revolutionary War. He surveyed things. He saw a problem, he would fix it. Washington personally decided to fix the Whiskey Rebellion and led a contingency of troops on horseback to western Pennsylvania to squash any violence on, part of the, on the part of the whiskey distillers. Of course, once the whiskey distillers heard that Washington was leading troops to put down their rebellion, they dispersed before anybody arrived. And that was pretty much the end of their protest. It's a fascinating story because it's the first and only time that a sitting president would lead troops into a potential battle. But that was Washington. He saw the problem. He didn't delegate it. He fixed it. He said, I'm going to get on a horse. I'm going to take my troops. We're going to put down this rebellion. It's for the good of the country. He also had his first foreign affair crisis in his second term. France and Britain started fighting one another again in 1793 and tried to drag the U.S. into their war. As some background to, the, to that conflict, after America won the Revolutionary War, Great Britain imposed trade restrictions and tariffs on U.S. imports into their country, but flooded the U.S. market with their goods. And despite agreeing otherwise in the Treaty of Paris, Britain never stopped occupying some of their northern forts in the U.S. and continued to help native Indians fight against the American settlers. These actions frustrated a lot of Americans who had no love loss for Great Britain. When Britain and France started a war between themselves in 1793, a certain portion of the citizens of America wanted to support France, since France had supported the United States in the Revolutionary War. And frankly, without the help of the French, we probably would have never won that war. But Washington was adamant about remaining neutral and not getting the young country into another war. Britain subsequently becomes even more aggressive in their interactions with the United States during their war with France and seized U.S. ships heading to France for trading purposes. This further increased tensions between Britain and the United States. And at this point, George Washington sent John Jay, who was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, he sent him to Great Britain to lower the tensions between the two countries. Washington's primary instructions to John Jay were to avoid war and work out some kind of a deal. Jay goes to Britain in 1794, and by November of that year, he signs a treaty with Great Britain, now known as the John Jay Treaty, but formerly known as the Amity Commerce and Navigation Treaty. Overall, John Jay's treaty was not a very strong treaty, and it wasn't highly regarded by most Americans. The positives were that Jay got Britain to agree to leave their northern posts, which they should have done at the time of the Treaty of Paris, and he got a commercial treaty agreement between Great Britain and the U.S., giving the U.S. favored nation status, although that agreement limited our trading with the British West Indies. However, the resolution of all other issues, such as the boundary line between the United States and Canada, the repayments of pre-revolutionary war debts owed to English merchants, and the seizure of American ships were left to being arbitrated. The criticisms associated with this treaty 
were that John Jay gave too many concessions to Britain, which actually weakened U.S. trade rights, and that John Jay left open the U.S. to potentially paying for the pre-revolutionary war debts owed to English merchants. Despite the general dissatisfaction among many people in the United States with this treaty, by June of 1794, the Senate had approved the treaty by a vote of 30 to 10, and George Washington signed the treaty into law. Once again, George Washington's overarching objective was to avoid another war with Great Britain and to give the new nation the precious time it needed for the states to start building economic stability. This was very important to Washington. During his tenure as president, he visited every state in the Union. Most historians credit the important economic growth achieved by the country during its first decade of existence to Washington keeping the country from war. By September of 1795, Washington announced that he would not seek or accept a third term as president, and he writes a farewell address to the people of the United States. He's 64 years old. His farewell address is one of the better-known writings of Washington. He supports his vice president, John Adams, for being elected as the next president of the executive branch. Adams narrowly defeats Jefferson for the presidency. Some post-presidency thoughts. In 1797, Washington returns to Mount Vernon and his farm, and he opens up his own rye distillery. Historians report that this investment was one of his most profitable, and by 1799, it became the largest distillery in the United States. It's actually still in operation today as part of the Mount Vernon estate. Washington inspected his farmland on horseback on a regular basis in his retirement. On December the 12th, 1799, after riding horseback during a rainy day, he develops a sore throat. His cold symptoms worsen significantly, and he struggles to breathe and speak. Historians suspected that Washington had an influenza-type infection of the epiglottis, which is the flap that covers your trachea during swallowing so food doesn't get down into your lungs. The epiglottis can quickly swell, and if it's not treated, it can cause death by blocking your windpipe. Unfortunately, there was no treatment for this problem at that time. It's reported that Washington quietly accepted his fate and reviewed his wills and confirmed the will he had written that would free his slaves upon Martha's death. Washington died at age 67 within two days of contracting his cold. He's buried at Mount Vernon. He only got to spend two and a half years at his farm after leaving the presidency. Upon learning of the rather sudden death of Washington, Congress began to plan for a national funeral service in Philadelphia, which was still serving as the interim capital of the federal government as the construction of the Capitol building was not yet finished in Washington, D.C. The famous phrase describing Washington as first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen actually came from the eulogy for Washington at the national funeral delivered by Henry Lee of Virginia, who was a close friend of Washington's. Final thoughts, a few final thoughts on Washington. 
he just kept stepping up to serve his country when he really would have preferred being on his farm at Mount Vernon. Yes, he stepped up to become the commander-in-chief of the army during the Revolutionary War, which kept him away from his home for six to seven years. He stepped up at Madison's urging to go to the Constitutional Convention for four months in Philadelphia, with Washington having to rely on his nephew to run the farm. Then he stepped up again, Chris, when elected to serve four years as the president of the newly created executive branch, when he probably would have preferred to be at Mount Vernon. Then he stepped up for another four years for a second term. Yeah, Washington just always put the needs of the country before his personal needs. Perhaps it was because he best understood the human cost as well as the economic cost of the war, and he didn't want to see those sacrifices be for nothing if the new nation were to fail. Washington was really the prototypical America. He was the glue that held the young nation together. If there hadn't been a George Washington, there might not be an America. And in our next podcast, Chris, we are going to talk about the presidency of John Adams.